0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GabFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to a special Slate Political Gab Fest for Tuesday, February 2nd, 2016. The, is it Groundhog Day or is it the day after Iowa caucuses edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent, joins us from Iowa. We'll talk to Jamel in one second. And chairman of the Slate Group, Jacob Weisberg, is in New York. And, of course, yesterday was the Iowa caucus. There's tons of news about it, and we're going to talk about all of it. Let's start, though, with you, Jamal. Uh, where are you in Iowa, and what, what did you witness last night? Did you witness scenes of
2: carnage and pillaging? And <laughs> <laughs> well, I am currently in a hotel uh, outside Des Moines, and last night I went to a caucus location at Drake University, and I saw a... Auditorium full of students uh, shouting very loudly and very excitedly for the candidates, including surprisingly, like a handful of O'Malley kids. Like, and by handful, I mean like legitimately like fifteen O'Malley kids, which might who might actually you know make up O'Malley's entire base in Iowa. <laughs> it was. I mean, I've never I've never seen a caucus before, so it was interesting just watching how arcane it is, and it makes you wonder why. I mean, the only reason why Iowa Democrats have to have to are, are are still doing it this way? It must be because of some sort of misguided connection to tradition, um, because it really makes no sense. <laughs> the, let's let's talk about the Democratic
0: results first, um, and then we can linger on the Republican results. So, Jacob, as we tape, it's Hillary Clinton has claimed a extremely narrow victory. It is um, if it is a victory, it is a victory by Bush v. Gore type margins. But is that win enough for her to to walk away relieved from my Probably. I mean,
3: I, counting votes in Iowa is a pretty rough science. You know, you sometimes don't find out for a couple of weeks who who really won. And, and given that, I think you have to say it's effectively a tie. But yeah, she can claim a narrow victory and, and nobody can prove that wrong. You know, she's Iowa was, was the beginning of, of the end for her last time. That She can point to the differences this time. Sanders clearly has a movement and it seems that just about everybody young voted for sanders and just about everybody vote, old voted for hillary but he doesn't show certain strengths he would need to be showing at this point to point towards a possible victory there's nothing coming out of this that says all right he's now going to be able to get the black vote she hasn't shown the kind of weaknesses
0: in field organization that showed up in iowa last time jamel you wrote a piece arguing that this is that this fight And Sanders' relatively strong showing is very good for the Democrats generally. What's the theory of the case there?
2: The theory of the case is just that when you have a competitive primary, you have two parties, in addition to the Democratic Party as a whole, trying to find and contact new voters, trying to activate old voters. And that kind of activity lingers. Um, It doesn't vanish once the primary is over. And I think, you know, part of Barack Obama's big 2008 general election victory it owes itself to the fact that the Obama campaign and the Clinton campaign, it's been a lot of work contacting voters in places that Democrats don't, know, don't normally have to fight primary battles. And so you know, everyone forgets, but Obama won Indiana in 2008. And that owes itself a lot to the fact that the Obama campaign turned out a lot of black voters in Indiana for the primary. If this primary goes into the, well into the spring, and I think it probably will, I think you'll have a similar effect just with the Sanders campaign and the Clinton campaign trying to get as many voters as they can to the polls. Uh, if Bernie Sanders, um, if he loses and if he encourages his supporters to, to back Clinton and back the Democrats. Surely he will. I mean, the party will reunite. He's not that far outside of it.
0: He's no, only... it's just
2: it's just be, it's the, the reason I hesitate is because Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat. He's running as a Democrat um, because he has to. That's the only way he can run in the primary. But uh, And he's caucused with Democrats his whole career, but he does not identify himself as a Democrat. He does not maintain ties to the Democratic Party. It is sort of a complaint, a long-term, long-term complaint among Vermont Democrats that Sanders has never been that interested in party building. Because of those facts, it's a bit of an open question, not like a completely open question, but open enough that I'm I'm not going to immediately say, well, of course, Bernie Sanders will endorse Clinton if she wins. Um, I don't know. Jam- Jamel,
3: to me, the interesting question is what are these Sanders voters trying to tell us? Are they trying to tell us that they don't like Hillary Clinton? They think she's too much part of the establishment. She's old news. They're, they're not enthusiastic about her. Are they trying to tell us that they think the system is too corrupt and that campaign finance reform is the key issue? Are they trying to tell us that they don't believe in capitalism in some fundamental way. And I think that's a significant part of it. But what this movement is really about and what those voters are saying goes to this question Jamel's talking about, first of all, about whether... Sanders is capable of delivering all those votes for Hillary Clinton in the fall. And secondly, whether he wants to deliver or would want to deliver those votes for Hillary Clinton in
2: the fall. And based on my conversations with Sanders voters, I think it's it's divided. You definitely have people who are voting Sanders or who voted Sanders because they uh, – you know they just like him the best of the two candidates they like him the best they don't dislike Hillary Clinton they don't think she's you know history's greatest monster but they vastly prefer Bernie Sanders and they agree with his positions but i talked to a couple voters um and these were these were pretty young people 19 20 years old who said forthright that if Bernie Sanders doesn't win the nomination they're just not going to vote in the fall i think it's
0: i think you you always have to remember especially in primaries especially in places where they campaigns are intense, simply the, the pleasure that young people take in participating in political action. If you're a young progressive, you look on the other side and you see all these white people motivated and animated by this crazy Republican primary, and you want to have some fun. Sanders offered the pleasure and offers the fun. In this campaign, I think I I wouldn't I wouldn't overread too much into it as a political movement. I would say like he's yeah he offers a different he offers a certainly a kind of skeptical take on capitalism, and he he's a you know much louder progressive. But I I feel like a lot of what is animating the Sanders activity is simply the pleasure that young people take in being part of a political process, and political campaigns are fun.
3: Well, ca- campaigns are fun. Although Sanders is a pretty anhedonic character.
0: Um, but but the campaign is not anhedonic. No, I mean they, that, they, that's that's they, true. They have <laughs> vampire weekend concerts and things like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that but, just that to me is actually an argument for me for what I'm saying, but, which is that people will find the he, the hedonism even with somebody as dreary as as a, as a Sanders or a Bill Bradley.
3: Right, and if that's true, it doesn't really matter who the, who the candidate is. But I, I think it does matter here because I think the idea of Sanders is motivated by match up with a lot of the political sentiment you do hear on. College campuses, especially on the progressive uh, campuses, if not a rejection of capitalism, a feeling that capitalism is not delivering for people, it's not—it's not, it's not an f- equitable system. A, you know, a, a preoccupation with all kinds
0: of injustice, racial injustice, economic injustice. I guess I just don't think it's that—that's that deep. I mean, I think where that where is that felt more strongly? It's felt with people who actually are being screwed by. What's happening in the economy? People who aren't in college, people who aren't don't have college degrees, who people who are poor, who are in prison, and who are shut out of the economy. Those are the people who I feel like those resentments matter. The college students are all they're going to graduate into jobs and prosperity.
2: I mean, so I'm not, I'm not so. It's it's slightly a a clothing for them. So I'm not robe. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, when you look at. Just when you look at sort of all, not just this particular political movement, but kind of all kinds of political movements, you know, oftentimes the people directly affected are are very passionate, but oftentimes the people just above them are also very affected and very motivated by by what they see. So in the case of the rise of people like Donald Trump, Donald Trump's voters aren't necessarily the people being shafted by the economy. They're the people just above them who feel anxiety by what they witness in the sort of social strata below them. There are working-class Bernie Sanders supporters I've talked to. I've met quite a few of them. There are lots of college kids. There are lots of college kids who have working-class families, which is an important distinction from sort of the, you know, Mm. uh, college kids going to uh, very competitive or or elite schools, kids whose parents, you know, uh, teachers, police officers, as well as people who work in restaurants. And these are kids with a lot of student debt, and who are genuinely worried about their future, and they see they around them in their lives, people are hurting in, in the present economy, and that's what's motivating them. So I'm not sure I would make such a clean distinction between young people who might be engaged, uh, essentially, it's fashion, and people who are old who have some tangible connection to the issues. Mm. All right,
0: let's let's do one more question of the Democrats, and then move to the Republicans. And Jacob, this is for you. You are. I I know you're somebody who loves uh, New Hampshire, you love the New Hampshire primary, you've spent a lot of time up there. Is for for Hillary Clinton is New Hampshire simply like let me just get through this next week, lose this by a respectable margin and get out of here or is she going to try to really compete there?
3: I think she'll try to do her best there, but it, but in the in the scheme of things it doesn't matter. I mean, Hillary Clinton gets the nomination because state by state she has the organization, the funding, the depth of support, the party establishment behind her. Now of course none of that worked for her in 2008, but she didn't have it to the same extent and she had a far more viable and appealing challenger. This time I just can't see the all of that not delivering the nomination for her. So these early primaries that everyone gets so excited about but that don't really matter in terms of delegates, you know, are a kind of distractions. So in that sense she needs to get through it and get into the sort of mother load primaries where she can cash in her, her inherent
0: advantages. Okay, enough about Democrats. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor before we talk about the Republicans. We're sponsored today by Stamps.com. Sometimes it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day, even when you're working past nine to five. So if you are still making time-consuming trips to the post office, you need a better way, and that better way is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can get the postage you need the instant you need it. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer. Stamps.com is quick and easy, and you'll save money with it, too, because it's just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters, and you get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST for the special offer. A four-week trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. Get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's Stamps.com. Enter GabFest. All right, let's go to... The GOP race, much more anticipated, much more, many more candidates. Oh, and we'll say goodbye, Martin O'Malley, along the way. Goodbye. Martin O'Malley. <laughs> um, uh, so, Jamel, um, Cruz won a fairly weak second for Trump and a pretty strong third for Rubio. Is that that's the conventional wisdom? Is that um, as you read it? Is that right?
2: Yeah, I have to confess, I'm pretty baffled by the conventional wisdom here. You know, I look at the Iowa caucuses and I see. A sharply divided establishment whose best candidate, most talented candidate, places third. 24%, I don't remember the exact number. Rubio did well. He did better than expected. But he still placed third. And he didn't place third below other similar candidates. He placed third below a reality TV star who um, has barely done any substantial campaigning. And behind uh, Ted Cruz... who who, who won who combined a factional appeal to evangelical voters to conservatives with the kind of organization that you typically see from establishment candidates so if i were if i were a rubio backer i guess i would be glad in the sense that you know my candidate has not uh shit the bed to use a phrase um, but not, nothing about this convinces me would convince me that Rubio is somehow poised to to break out and win, unless unless other Republican candidates in the race and specifically other establishment type candidates drop out to make room for Rubio to take their support. But I don't I don't see that happening. But as far as I can tell, the theory of the race that Ted Cruz has described in multiple interviews by which there is a uh, conservative and evangelical bloc that can be consolidated into a majority and a divided establishment, still holds. Jacob, what
0: do you see as Trump's strategy going forward? If he doesn't have durability, how does he extricate himself gracefully from this?
3: Well, uh, you can't but be pleased that he got his head handed to him in Iowa. I mean, you know, Trump is hes a vile character, and he's run— this unprecedented, nativist, xenophobic, nationalist campaign. And he's also tried to run a campaign that I think sort of indicates contempt for the process because he hasn't really built an organization and he hasn't felt compelled to do the things that other politicians have to do, like show up for a debate. Instead, he's just running on money and celebrity. But the one thing I want to kind of point out about it, David, is, you know, Iowa is... Really, really undemocratic in a lot of ways. I mean, you have to to vote. You have to have two hours available at a specific time. If you know, if you have to work or pick up your kids at 6:30, you don't get to vote in the Iowa caucus. And it's not a secret ballot. You go and stand and and telegraph to everybody who you support. In some cases, you may even want to speak for your candidate. The reason we have a secret ballot is we think people should be able to vote without the pressure of voting in public and without the shame as one of the factors. I think people were ashamed to stand up for Trump at the caucuses. When you ask why he underperformed the polls, when it came down to it, people didn't want to be standing with the other idiots known in their town as the Trump
0: supporters. If you were prognosticating, would you bet that that actually... In New Hampshire and places where where there is a secret ballot, he's he is going to significantly outperform what he did in Iowa.
3: Well, he probably will do better in in New Hampshire than in Iowa. The record so far of anti-Trump prognostication is not very good. So one hesitates to engage in it. But I, <laughs> but I do I, I I firmly believe there is a ceiling on Trump's support, and whether that ends up being twenty eight percent or thirty three percent or even forty percent, I think it makes it fundamentally uh, close to impossible for him to get the
0: nomination. Is there a ceiling on Cruz, Jamel?
2: You know, I don't have an answer to that. I I think it's entirely plausible that Cruz wins the nomination while just winning a plurality of votes just because of the delegate map and the delegate game. Uh, extreme candidates have won nominations before. Uh, and if anyone can do it this cycle, uh, Ted Cruz strikes me as the one who can.
0: Is it your guys' sense that... that after New Hampshire there will indeed be 3 or I mean it sounds like Jamel you're you you think it may continue a bit longer because people have money and and can anybody except Rubio be the third at this point
2: I think Rubio is the natural third um I think I think this Iowa distribution um is pretty much it's uh, pretty much reflects where the where Republican voters are right now the only scenario with which Rubio is not the third. is if he really underperforms in New Hampshire. That, I think, is still possible. Uh, there are signs of a late case like the surge. Um, Chris Christie is still grinding grinding out as much as possible there. And Jeb Bush might even perform better than expected.
0: Jacob, just you're, you're a historian of, of uh, American politics and of recent Republican politics in particular. Put in context, the, the idea that it would be a Cruz-Rubio-Trump just how extremely, extremely out of the mainstream that would be if you look at them as policy people.
3: Well, the, well, they are all very right wing by any standard. Though Trump is a funny kind of populism that that isn't really conservative in the sense of the movement that began with Goldwater. Um, but I think the, the 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 big shift is in some ways temperamental. You know, I I just read this book about Ronald Reagan and thinking about the kind of party Reagan created, which was optimistic and forward-looking, as, as people always say, but was also welcoming with the sort of idea of American identity, which was Reagan's, of, of immigration and assimilation and opportunity. And it was based on an extremely broad-minded idea of, of what it meant to be an American and what it meant to be a conservative, that the Reagan's party tried to bring people in from the center. Tried to work toward the center. The party now has a sensibility typified by Trump and Cruz in particular that is just exactly the opposite of that. It's exclusive rather than inclusive. It's negative. It's pessimistic. It's ugly. It has an idea of American identity that is, you know, has much more in common with older ideas about um, who who is American. I mean, Jamel um, called Trump's movement diet white nationalism, which I thought was a pretty good description of it. So, you know, that's the way in which the party now seems to be the Republican Party, to me, looks to have shifted even more. It's been moving right for a long time. And, of course, Iowa in particular is a place where these right wing candidates have thrived in the last several elections where people like Santorum and Huckabee, who don't really make sense in the rest of the country, do well.
0: So in some ways, it's less the policies and more the attitude. Although I don't, you feel that Rubio, Rubio as a general election candidate, could pull himself back from that. That Rubio hmm. is fundamentally a sunny, optimistic person who's pretending to be sinister and dark for the purposes of winning this nomination. But that that that's not really who he is. I, I agree with you. I think part of the reason he is their best and most viable
3: candidate, but there's this problem the Republican establishment, such as it has, which is that you know the candidates it hates. Trump and Cruz, the voters seem to like, and the candidates it likes, all the others, or many of the others, the voters don't like. Rubio is the closest thing to a compromise, someone the elites could support, who it seems that Republican primary voters might actually be willing to support too. I don't see Christie and Jeb getting out of his way that
0: soon. Jamel, are there any fond words that we should say for any of the other Iowa Republicans Ben Carson who obviously was had this moment where he was ahead had a pretty terrible fourth place performance Rand Paul who people I think thought might represent some wing of the party that might show up didn't do very well was it was there anybody who did anything last night that was worth noting
2: I will say a moment of sort of like you know I'm sorry I'm actually sorry Rand Paul didn't do as well as he was hoping and I you know I don't think he'll do especially well in New Hampshire either um, but I will give Rand Paul credit for not falling to the same temptation that a lot of his competitors have, which is adjusting their rhetoric and essentially trying to ape elements of Trump's appeal. Um, I saw Rand Paul at a rally, some caucus goers at Iowa State yesterday, and he, he stuck to his message, which was, you know, small government, a radical small government uh, against the drug war. He got a big applause for talking about racial disparities in drug arrests you know, more inclusive libertarianist message, and there doesn't seem to be much appetite for that in the Republican Party. Jeb Bush did the same thing, actually, at, at, a, at an event in Des Moines yesterday afternoon, and trying to make the case for a more substantive, inclusive uh, Republican Party. But I think he deserves some credit for that, uh, but I have this theory that there might be people in the Bush team who think that, and, and this is driven by the fact that they keep on unloading their war chest on Rubio and Kasich and people directly adjacent them. And there's strategic reasons for that as well. But it might, I have to say that it might also be because they may think that you have to destroy the Republican party to save it. And if the GOP nominates someone like Cruz or Trump, that strengthens the hands of reformers. Whereas Rubio is running essentially as a, a return to the basic approach of George W. Bush with a, a harder and, I think, more conservative edge on domestic policy. It's sort of, a, Rubio is very much a you-don't-have-to-change candidate. I have a feeling that the Bush people just don't think that's the the right orientation for the Republican Party.
0: So one of the things that's, that that baffled me about Iowa was that the more time people spent with Ted Cruz, the more they <laughs> wanted to vote for him, which to me is just goes against every fiber of my being, every second extra I have to spend looking at Ted Cruz <laughs> makes my makes skin crawl. It makes me miserable. Could it be that Cruz really does wear well as a candidate, at least if you're a Republican, and and that all this the, the kind of hatred that he seems to evince in people who actually know him and have worked with him and then in also in in Democrats like me is is not relevant for this primary campaign?
3: Well, he has won previous elections, so clearly it's possible for there to be a disjunction between what voters think about him and what people who know him think about him. And it does seem to be, among people who know him, I mean, it's, it's to an unusual degree he's despised. Like, it's hard to find someone who will say something nice about him off the record. You know? But um, uh, I think the thing you've got to avoid doing here is confusing the Republican primary electorate in Iowa with any other electorate. That is a very that is a very specific political constituency. It's it's evangelical, it's super conservative, it's super traditional. It doesn't really it happens to be those happen to be the people who vote first, but they don't really have much relationship to the rest of the country. So, you know, although we're excited about it because it's what happened first and it's what happened yesterday, to me it doesn't say anything
0: really about Ted Cruz's viability even as a national Republican candidate. God, from your mouth to God's ears, Jacob. All right. uh, Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent in Iowa, Jacob Weisberg, chairman of the Slate Group in New York. Thank you guys for joining us for this GabFest extra, 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 extra. Our producer today is Jocelyn Franks. Steve Liptai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. I have a Panoply T-shirt on, or I'm about to, once I go to the gym check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com and our Twitter feed is at slate gabfest. For Jamel Bowie and Jacob Weisberg, I'm David Plotz. I'll have another show for you on Thursday. Thanks. Bye-bye.